Hey everyone, welcome to the 1% Difference Show with me, your host, Jason S. Bradshaw. The 1% Difference Show is here for you to help you stand out and succeed. A 1% extra focus on customer experience, employee experience, brand experience, product experience, your business, your life is all the difference it takes. Joining us today is Michael Yusim. Mike is a professor of management and faculty director of leadership of the Leadership Center at McNulty Leadership Program and the McNulty Leadership Program at the Wharton School of University of, Pen- of Pennsylvania. His university teachings include MBA and executive MBA courses on management and leadership, and he offers programs on leadership and governance for managers in the private, public, and not-for-profit sectors. He is the author of The Leader's Checklist, The Leader's Mindset, and his latest book, The Edge, How 10 CEOs Learned to Lead and the Lessons for Us All. Mike is also the co-anchor for a weekly program, Leadership in Action, on Cirrus XM Radio, Channel 132, Business Radio by Wharton. Mike, welcome to the show. Well, Jason, thank you, and it's a privilege to be here. I look forward to our dialogue. Now, I'm not sure how I managed to get into your busy schedule. The number of books that you've written, the programs, the work that you do um, at the university there, uh, I really am privileged and thankful for your time today. Uh, congratulations on the new book, uh, the, ten, uh, the Edge, How 10 CEOs Learn to Lead and the Lessons for Us All. Now, I, I noticed on your website this uh, this phrase, 10 vivid, you are their accounts of chief executive officers who are reinventing leadership, providing insight and tools crucial for moving forward in a world turned upside down. This sounds like a book everyone should be getting a copy of. I certainly am enjoying the read myself. But what led you to write the book? So Jason, I think the the history behind the book is very simple. My responsibilities and many people's responsibilities include helping others develop their management skill set and their leadership and their strategic thinking going forward. And I think uh, I began to fault myself for teaching a little bit too much about the past. So we look at those who have led last year even or five years ago or let's take it before COVID-19 imagine those days and what it uh, took to lead before, uh, let's make it March 2020 in just about every country, uh, leadership now, it's different from what it was then. And uh, if we go back 10 years, leadership now is different from then. And then what worried me though, is thinking about 10 years from now, are we gonna be bringing into our classroom and programs and podcasts like this, ideas that will be relevant for listeners or students 10 years out. So I'd like everybody just to imagine for a moment, a kind of a thought experiment. Uh, let's make it uh, this date and uh, 10, a decade ahead. What are you going to need that's different then from what is now the conventional wisdom at this point? So to um, get at that riddle, I decided to look closely at 10 individuals who were themselves changing their own leadership practices to anticipate the future before it swallowed them up. And thus, that's the reference you made to the kind of close-in accounts. In my own experience, I think others learn best by looking at people who've been there, done it, and in this case, were already transforming their leadership. Uh, 
Um, concepts, theories, data, all uh, complement uh, what I've just said. But at heart, I think we learn most by looking at those who've made a difference in the history of a country, the practices of a hospital, the operations of a military unit, you name it, we need new leadership for it. And the book is intended to identify what is going to be really vital going forward. Uh, and the 10 leaders that uh, you cover off in the book, they're, they're from every corner of business uh, and society at whole, really. It's, it's not a book just for manufacturers or retailers or healthcare professionals. You, you cover the full gambit of, of industry. And here's why. Uh, again, in my own practice, working with uh, students, many from Australia, from many different kinds of backgrounds, we really have to think about what do leaders, regardless of background or ultimate destination, what are they going to need uh, to set a vision, to think strategically, to communicate persuasively, and thus really important to have examples from outside your own terrain, your own industry uh, on the premise. And I think it's correct that we often learn more by looking far away from home about what is vital at home. And thus I have, for example, uh, the executive chair and the chief executive of Estee Lauder Companies, one of the world's great fragrance makers. Uh, lots of those products in your stores and at the airports uh, when you come into your country. Of course, I have an individual who was a owner of a big sports franchise here, focused in on um, a person, her name is Patricia Griffith, who runs one of America's largest insurance companies. So the 10 people uh, that I profile couldn't be more different, but in their common ground, I think is uh, at least uh, a platform for thinking about your own leadership 10 years out. So what is the edge? <laughs> the edge is, uh, glad you asked about that, it's a metaphor. And the phrase itself really comes from a famous American mountaineer named, his name is, colloquial name is Jim Whitaker, James Whitaker, who was the first American to ascend Mount Everest back in 1963. Of course, uh, Tenzing Norgay and, and uh, Sir Edmund Hillary reached the summit uh, about a decade earlier, the first people ever to reach that summit. But um, it took uh, about a decade for uh, Americans to pull together an expedition and uh, <laughs> ascend up a lot of edges to reach the summit of Mount Everest as Jim Whitaker did. And he has often said, and we've met him in the Himalayas, we, we, we take some of our students into the Himalayas to think about leadership in that environment for what's going to be relevant back and let's make an investment banking in New York. And in meeting Jim Whitaker, his final summary uh, farewell to us was this statement. If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up space. It's a metaphor. Uh, it's memorable. And, and that's the basic uh, argument of the book is to move yourself to the edge of what's going to be vital looking ahead. Look over the edge. See what's out there. Uh, easier said, <laughs> either said than done to get it. But the book is intended to show people not only what's going to be vital in years ahead, but how to grab a hold of that and make it work for you now and in the years ahead, the edge. And what I love about the, the notion of the edge is you, 
you're very much focused on the future and being prepared for the future. So not not thinking that you know it all, that you know you've won, that you've run one Fortune 500 company, you can run the next one without needing to to think or explore or or adapt or change your leadership, um, which. I think too often individuals can get focused on just studying their industry or even at times just, you know, their very niche down profession. Uh, so love, love the message that, that, you've, that you have there. Aspiring leaders, you know, listening to, to this show, uh, 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 people from all different backgrounds, what, what's the one tip that you would give to someone that's aspiring to be a leader know that is this book for them is is there some somewhere else they should start you know it's a really good question and i'm often asked exactly that question for good reason uh life is short we need leadership whether it's political or military or community or health or business and uh, the complaint i hear the world around i've traveled a lot is uh, this country or this industry needs more leadership than we have Sometimes that's a overstated statement, but I think it, it does point to the fact that leadership is tough to acquire. In my view, nobody is a natural born leader. Some had a head start, maybe most famously Nelson Mandela, who just seemed a natural uh, and kept the vision despite 27 years in prison. Uh, one of the articles of anybody's leadership is a commitment to an ultimate purpose and vision, of course. And he seemed to have that just uh, almost naturally. That said, in our view, uh, most people uh, don't get uh, kind of a head start in any way. And then it becomes a matter of understanding your, your own pathways to becoming a more effective leader. That leads then to uh, just one point. I'm going to end on this in response to your query here. Going to reference a, actually a great book by one of my professional colleagues. She's on the faculty at the London Business School. Ermina Ibarra is her name. I've got her cited in the book, of course. And she says that the first step to becoming an effective leader, whatever you're calling, is to decide you're going to make a difference in the lives of others. That's your decision. Nobody else can make it. But once you make it, then that leads you to go into, say, a training program or to take a swing at a startup where you have to learn leadership if you're going to start up anything. And with that, then people come to look at you as a person who's making a difference in their lives and maybe making a difference in far more. And they give you then an opportunity to further strengthen your, your leadership because they want to work with you. They want to join your enterprise. So the first, maybe the, the, the article of incorporation is taking on this as an academic phrase, a personal identity as a person who makes a difference. It doesn't tell you how to do it, but if you don't have that to begin with, uh, it is much tougher to get going. So first step, decide you're going to make a difference. I, I absolutely love that. It's a, a, a very intentional focus on making a difference to to the people that you have the privilege to lead. What we've, we've mentioned a couple of times, you know, it's about what what's happening in the next 10 years. So what, what will be essential for leadership in the years ahead, do you think? So let me take an example to make the point by referencing Patricia Griffith. She's known as Tricia Griffith, Chief Executive Officer of Progressive Insurance, a huge US-based insurance company 
uh, auto insurance, scooter insurance, motorcycle insurance, boat insurance. She sells it. She's got 40,000 people working with her to provide it and then to help out people who get in trouble with a car crash, whatever it may be. And she has concluded, I'm in totally the same camp, that the historic concept of the big boss, the emperor, so to speak, the person in the high tower who by edict can make things happen, whether it was the original Ford Motor Company or in the latter part of the last century, the famous Jack Welsh at GE, General Electric. Um, I met Jack Welsh several times, uh, attended a couple of events where he was a speaker, and boy, he was a prototype, uh, almost a perfect model of the person who would, from on high, give uh, commanding instructions uh, for people to get the job. He had to get by, and of course, lots goes with that. He would express his intent. I want the plastics division or the television division that he ran at one point to hit these numbers, and then you guys figure out how to do it. But he was unequivocally demanding of results. So I think that insistence on results is still with us and will be in business, in medicine, you name it. We want results. Um, in fact, I think that's the third item in your uh, your subtitle here. It's Inspire, Engage, and Deliver, I wrote down. <laughs> uh, he, like anybody, wants delivery, of course. But now the question is how we're going to get that over the next 10 years. Trisha Griffith concluded that the big boss model, first of all, it wasn't her. And second of all, it didn't describe, she thought, the world that's going to be required. So... For example, I walked through the company with her in conducting research in this, and it struck me as rather odd. She would never take uh, an elevator. She wanted to walk up staircases. I'm thinking, Trisha, why? This is, you've got a big building here. And she said, you know, I meet more people in the staircase who weren't expecting me, and suddenly there they see the CEO, and I say, how's it going, and tell me what's up. And so she has come off the pedestal. She's on the staircase. And to make it a little bit colorful here, she insists on one of America's great holidays, unknown to most countries of the world, but it's called Halloween. The American tradition, this is trick or treat is the slogan that you may have heard, uh, but the underlying or more important concept, instead of either you get a treat or you, you provide a trick, is to dress up in a costume. Now, I haven't seen a whole lot of people in, in high rank uh, wear a costume to work on a given day, uh, but she came in as uh, Captain Marvel. She insisted her CFO, her head of HR, all the other um, senior people who reported to her to find a costume, uh, whether it's uh, Superwoman or you name it, Superman. And they were going to take the day off from work and simply walk around the facilities and uh, give, uh, this is before COVID-19, uh, lots of high fives, lots of joking, lots of camaraderie. And it speaks to her tradition, which is manifest in many things she does, of getting off the pedestal. When she speaks, she won't get up on a lectern. She won't stand behind the barrier uh, or anything that separates her from the people. She simply wades into the crowd and says, great to see you. Where are you from? What's going on? Tell me your, your, your concerns at the moment. And maybe just to illustrate it and then sum it up, I've always loved this. She will come to the employee's lunchroom, a rather large facility. This is a 40,000-person firm. 
and she'll simply spot a table. There's one extra seat. She sits down. Initially, there's a little bit of a gasp as everybody's <laughs> looking at the person that they may have seen from afar, but she is the chief executive of one of the Fortune 500 companies, our, our list of big companies here. And she says, uh, you know, what happened over the weekend and so on? Word gets around that this CEO is approachable at Halloween in the lunchroom. And so when she says, look, this next year, we want 12% growth in uh, our policies written. We want 8% uh, growth in our assets that we manage until we pay them out. People think, okay, I've, I've, I've had lunch with her and I know what she wants. And I've seen her up close. And so there's a salute. She uh, gets the results. And one, res one outcome of what I've just described, which is partly what uh, took my attention in her direction, our Fortune magazine, one of America's uh, well-known publications uh, on business, features every year the CEO of the year. And the caption said on the front cover, Trisha Griffith, CEO of Progressive Insurance, a company many of you have never heard of, has performance that has outdone Apple and Google. And therefore, she is the CEO of the year. And what goes into that is not leadership of yesteryear, but a modern method that says underneath it, the assumption is totally correct in my view, is that employees these days want to be more personal. They want to bring some of their concerns at home to work, or these days they bring work to home. And she wants to create an environment where she responds to that, gives everybody the best of that. And I think the proof here is in the, uh, in the delivery. She has managed to grow this company more than some of the amazing growth companies like Apple have been able to deliver. So get off the pedestal, get down, have lunch with your employees. Uh, absolutely a breathtaking performance uh, for, at Progressive. And, and I love uh, the, the connection element uh, that she's going for with her employees or with her team members. Um, thank, you. thank you so much for sharing that. You, you mentioned you know, people wanted to uh, these days take a bit of home to work. And over the last year or so, a lot of us have been taking uh, home and work in the same location uh, because of the pandemic. I'm wondering, uh, from your view, Mike, what has the pandemic taught us about leadership and and managing through a, a crisis? Well, Jason, number one, it has taught, taught us that leadership and its impact is enormous. There's a theory out there, and it's in the, I think, the, the, the common mind. I shared it for a while. How much difference can one person really make? Let's make it a, a commander on an aircraft carrier. That's a rather large ship. American carriers have about 4,000 sailors on board. Uh, that baby is tough to turn. And thus, can one person, a, a commanding officer or a, an executive or a manager like, like so many people, probably connected with, connecting with this program, can you really make that much difference? I won't go through the academic evidence, but there's plenty that you, one person, can make a difference. And it's not a 2% difference. Uh, I like your 1%, by the way, difference, uh, for sure. Uh, but on average, 
if you bring the right skill set and it has to be modernized, has to be current, it has to speak to 2030 and not just 2010, uh, you can make up to 30% difference. And here's, by the way, uh, the statistic that really stunned me when I saw it. Somebody, technical academic approach to this, looked at how much difference can a general manager of a sports team make on the final score in a given game or over a season. So the research does not include cricket, I'm uh, regretful <laughs> to say, but it does include American-style football, National Basketball Association teams. And the finding there, stunning, is the same as in business. One person, a general manager, a coach, if they bring the right skill set that's current, can make as much as 30% difference in the bottom line scores, one ver wins versus losses within one to three years. That got my attention. And Jason, partly for that reason, it's got the attention of my school. We now require along with finance and strategy and marketing and operations, students to pass a course in leadership. Can't graduate without a course taken and passed. Why is that? Strategy makes a difference, marketing makes a difference. So does leadership, and it's on the same scale. Absolutely, and there's uh, you know many examples where uh, the one individual in an organization makes or or breaks it. You know, think about um, you know, Apple's a, a great example of the ebb and flow of that business based on the leadership, the very senior leadership of that organization. You know, uh, you know the. The, the different CEOs over the years, the the different intent that they've brought to the organization. And of course, you know, I think, you know, from my own personal experience, you don't have to be the CEO to make a big impact on a business. Absolutely. In fact, that's really the, the most vital point of all. We all lead in our own world. The research tends to be done on coaches and general managers and, and top executives. But the finding applies, I think, almost universally. So let's, let's suppose we're responsible for an, uh, an ICU floor at a hospital. So we are the maybe the nurse in charge. Are we going to make a difference in the lives of others? You bet. And the impact, therefore, calls upon us, if we want to stay with that formula, make a difference, identify yourself as a person who makes a difference, then we got to get what is required. And that's where this book comes in because it is an effort on my part to help people that want to make a difference going forward, figure out how to indeed make that difference when the era is not the same as it was 10 years ago. I, I think there's just so much in the book that we could, uh, that we could go deep on. And of course, um, we don't have the next 12 hours to, to even scratch the surface. But um, what, one of the areas that in the book that I thought was very interesting was this reinventing, it's, it's titled Reinventing the Culture. How, how important is culture to the success of a leader, to the success of the organization? Well, you know, in the early days of a startup, um, the value is zero. And um, Jason, I know you've been through that. Uh, many of the consumers, your podcast here probably as well. And you know that. I don't even have to say that. It was you, maybe two other people. Uh, but as you move beyond some 
undefinable number, maybe 20, maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe 300, you as the entrepreneur can no longer have direct contact with most of the people. And the example I draw out in the, in the book is that of a person named Alex Gorsky, who began at Johnson & Johnson, one of America's great pharma companies involved now, everybody knows this, uh, with the distribution of its own vaccine for COVID-19. He began at rung number one at the very bottom. He literally oversaw nobody. He was a, a, a salesperson going to meet surgeons, suggesting they think about J&J products. But over not so many years, he rose up, and today he presides over a company that's close to 140,000 people in consumer products, in medical products, and now in vaccines. They develop one for Ebola, and now they have one that is proving successful on the market for COVID-19. But he still is the leader. So he wants people like us all to get the job done to serve consumers in the best possible way. And in this case, uh, patients can't do it hand, uh, hand on hand or these days elbow bumping because we can't shake hands usually, <laughs> got a mask on. So he has inherited an amazing tradition at Johnson & Johnson of uh, what they call the credo, C-R-E-D-O, the credo. It's a 300 word statement that lays out the purpose and the values of Johnson & Johnson. And he has doubled down on that, knowing full well that in leading that many people, a larger firm, uh, the look in the eye, the employee luncheon room is just not gonna get them in, in front of enough of the people. So he's doubled down on the culture, the credo, and he says this, we all got to know it. He just modernized it, again, bringing it into the present, getting rid of the baggage of older language and sometimes even inappropriate language for the current era. And it took a couple of years to do that, but he has taken the view, and I've seen it up close many times within the company, that the culture is that invisible medium that we kind of swim through almost like fish without realizing we're in water. But the credo is posted on everybody's wall. It's in the headquarters in, in, in marble. And it is a, a defining way of, of his leading people that he can't directly have contact with. But the credo does work to uh, pull them in the same direction. It's almost like a magnetic force. Mm -hmm. So, and I offer that up by way of saying for you too, if you are beyond that pure startup stage with yourself, uh, and a couple other people, Travis Kalanick, uh, when he got Uber going, was just himself and a couple other people. Uh, but now Uber, a huge company, uh, it spends a lot of time on, on its culture, its precepts. Uh, the new CEO that replaced uh, Travis Kalanick a couple of years ago has said, look, I've got people in, uh, in London uh, who I'm not going to meet, but I want them to understand what Uber stands for. And the culture is what does that. I think I think that's great, and that the that silent hand that guides the decision making and the behaviours of individuals, even even those that you can't directly touch, uh, culture is is so important. Now, uh, you know, with with your years of experience working with you know expiring leaders, executives. Uh, you know, t teaching the leaders of the future. 
have you developed a a leadership checklist for making a difference yes and i tend to use that phrase i don't want to overstate it but a checklist was a really pioneered by aviation a pre-flight checklist for a Qantas pilot uh, flying, let's say, out of Sydney on a 14 or 16 hour flight requires that that pilot on the flight deck and the co-pilot as well, check the fuel, the flight plan, the weather, the weight, the hydraulics, the anti-collision radar and well beyond. Surgeons around the world, same thing. Uh, at many hospitals and medical centers, not all, they have to go through what is often referred to as uh, the timeout. So the surgeon, and I've witnessed it directly, will walk into the surgical theater and say, we're about to commence the following kind of surgery. The name of the patient is this, birth date is that, the procedure's on the left knee and not the right knee. Let's not foul up on that. Let's use an anesthesia that will keep the patient uh, subdued uh, and, <laughs> and not kill them in the process. Some anesthesias won't work with certain patients, and they have to go through that. Why is that? We can get everything right as a pilot for a commercial aircraft, but if we forget to check the fuel, we got a problem. Same thing in leadership. And I end up with a, um, a compilation from watching people like we've been describing and many, many others, actually in many countries. I've spent a good bit of time in India, in uh, China. We're currently doing a project on leadership in Japan. And with that, that sense up close for what it takes to lead in India, let's make it uh, Tata or Infosys. Or in China, let's make it Lenovo or Alibaba. We interviewed the famous Jack Ma for one of our projects along this line. I believe they all are gonna need unequivocally to focus on vision, to have a strategy for building out, understand what the competitive landscape looks like but <clears throat> less obvious, but equally important, people want to know who you are, who, what's your character? What do you stand for deep down? So to put this in a more active um, verb tense here, you need to communicate your vision and your strategy. You need to communicate your character. Who exactly are you? And just one more item, certainly on my checklist, I think it's on every CEO's checklist that I've ever seen, don't forget to honor the room. It's an American politician's phrase. It means when you meet with anybody, let's make a progressive insurance, Trisha Griffith, she will make a point to say, you know, progressive is not progressive without what you're doing. Knowing full well, that's a small piece of a huge enterprise, but making every individual appreciate how important they are, honor the room is part of that checklist. Quick summary, Jason, don't leave home without it. Uh, I, I absolutely love it. And, and uh, that phrase, honor the room. And I think it's important that we have a habit of acknowledging everyone's contribution because it, it does take uh, more than just one individual to, to, to make an organization like Progressive, like Apple, like you know, any large organization turn, up, turn and, and get things done, right? You're absolutely right. So don't, don't forget that one either. <laughs> so, Mike, uh, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with your thought leadership and, of course, get a copy of, of this book and, and, and others? So I'm going to offer two avenues here for 
achieving what you've just asked me to reference here. Uh, the book is available through all the usual online book distributors, so you know where to find those and how to get them. Uh, Jason, at the outset, I think you referenced a, a website. It's just MikeUseem.com. Uh, uh, Jason, you probably got that in front of you if you want to correct that, but I think I've got that right. You you have indeed got that right. And in the uh, in the show notes, <laughs> in the show notes on the website, uh, we'll have links to Mike's website, uh, his Twitter account, and of course, to our favorite, well, my favorite bookstore, Amazon. Um, but uh, you can get Mike's book, uh, well, Mike's books, I should say, from everywhere great books are sold. Um, the reason Amazon is my favorite bookstore is because uh, when I was a teenager, when, and I'm talking 13 here, uh, 13 years of age, I was still buying books from Amazon uh, US before they were officially in Australia, and they could still get to my house in Australia faster than I could uh, get the book bought in by a bookstore. So Good. So, Jason, let me just add another line of thought here. Sure. It's really important, in my view, for ideas to take life to become a persuasive part of the back of your head. You're about to go into a meeting. Don't forget to reference strategy. Don't forget to honor the people in the room. And to that end, I'll encourage people who are listening or watching uh, this particular podcast, uh, I've got an open email inbox. And so I'm going to briefly reference my last name is U-S-E-E-M at Wharton, W-H-A-R-T-O-N dot U-P-E-N-N U -P -E -N -N dot E-D-U. That's me. Send me a message. I'll be happy to respond with uh, some thoughts if you got a question. So sorry to get kind of boring with that email address thing, but there it is. And I think it's on your website as well. Uh, uh, Mike, I'm, I'm absolutely speechless. It's not every day someone uh, like yourself makes themselves so accessible um, to, to the general audience. And I, I certainly do appreciate it now. Uh, Mike, you've agreed that you're going to stick around for a couple of bonus questions for our audience that they can watch online. And for our listeners, I take this opportunity to remind you that membership to the 1% Difference is free and you get access to additional resources, additional conversation with thought leaders like Mike and all of our guests to help you be 1% different, to improve by just 1% every day so that you can intentionally improve the world around you. 